Hi, it's Fraser here. And before we get into this week's episode of the Spiked Podcast, I just wanted to remind everyone about Spiked Supporters. Spiked Supporters is our thriving community of people who donate to Spiked. Anyone who gives £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year can become a Spiked Supporter and you can get access to a number of exciting perks. Spiked Supporters can comment on articles, get a discount on all items in our shop and bookmark articles as you browse. Plus, you can get free or discounted access to all of our events. It was brilliant to see so many Spike supporters at our recent live podcast with Brendan O'Neill and Julia Hartley Brewer. And we have plenty of exciting events in store for you. Spike supporters is our way of saying thank you to all of you who fund our work. Spiked is completely free and yet you still hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure anyone anywhere can read us. And for that, we're truly grateful. And if you don't give to Spiked yet, now is the perfect time to start. Just go to spiked-online.com forward slash supporters to set up your donation and your Spiked supporters account. That's spiked-online.com forward slash supporters. Now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me this week, as ever, we have Spike's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spike columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show today, censorship and the left, the autumn budget and green rationing. So the left-wing YouTube channel Navarra Media was deleted this week. Thankfully, it's been reinstated. But of course, this episode has raised all kinds of questions about censorship and the left and big tech censorship more broadly. I mean, Tom, do you want to talk us through what's happened? So as you say, it was a really remarkable development, although, you know, there's been many cases like this so far. Insofar as just their YouTube account was just out of nowhere deleted. They told it, they'd been told it'd been permanently deleted. They'd broken community guidelines, but for something very strange as if it was like fraud or mis-selling or something Mm. like this. So really quite alarming. As you say, it um, was re-established pretty quickly after a couple of hours after this big outcry, not just from their own supporters, but also from supporters of free speech and supporters of the media in general, everyone came out in force. And so it was quickly rectified. It now seems like it was a sort of human error, a glitch rather than anything actually substantial. But it does raise really serious questions. First of all, about the, the power of big tech. I mean, this is something which we've talked about many times, but at the same time, it can't be talked about enough, really, just how much of a kind of chokehold a handful of these platforms mm. have over what is essentially an extension of our media, of our public square. I mean, YouTube has, what, north of 2 billion monthly users. If you do not have a presence on there as a kind of internet show, as um, videographers or whatever, then you are at a severe disadvantage. Yeah. It has a real material impact on your ability to get your journalism and your work out there. So the fact that even if it is just in error that these things can be shut down, it shows the kind of concentration of power. And then on top of that, the fact that they are making judgments on content, not in this case, it turned out, just shows how potentially censorious and dangerous that dynamic is. I mean, the other part of it, which is, of course, you need to talk about, is the fact that it can't have escaped anyone's notice that this is basically the first instance of big tech censorship, though it was accidental in this case, that the left seemed to care about. Yeah. I mean, in terms of Navarra Media themselves, I think it's their head of video had tweeted a year previously, I'm not sure what case it was in relation to, that when you're kicked off of Twitter, when you're kicked off of a social media platform, that's a private company's decision that it's not censorship unsurprisingly he changed his tune in the wake of yeah. the <laughs> Navarra media being binned and said basically the complete 
opposite that these big tech firms shouldn't have this kind of power. And, you know, we could harp on about the double standards, the silence, the silence on the deletion of accounts which are deemed to be misinformation or right-wing accounts or even hard-right accounts, etc. The, the refusal to hold the line on free speech on any of these issues at all. I mean, even around the Donald Trump thing, I think the response from a lot of people on the left was to say, on balance, it was the right decision, but we'd rather it wasn't these billionaires making this yeah. decision, which just shows you how shallow their understanding is of this particular issue. But, you know, in a sense, they own those double standards. I don't think there has been any reassessment that's happened in the wake of this. I mean, it's been kind of written up and talked up, particularly amongst some free speeches, as if maybe people on the left are finally starting to realise, or people on the kind of censorious left are finally starting to realise that age-old lesson of censorship, which is if you do not protect even your enemies from being silenced, then you create a dynamic and an apparatus which will eventually reach unto you. I don't see any evidence of that whatsoever. (laughs) And and whilst you would hope that this would be a kind of moment in which um, that would force some kind of new thinking from the people on that side of the argument, I really don't think it has at all. I think I think the response, you know, from that side of politics has been the same as it often is. Oh, maybe the culture war has gone a bit too far. Or maybe identity politics has gone a bit too far. And then business as usual, you know, immediately straight afterwards without, as you say, mm. a kind of fundamental change in thinking. Ella? It was interesting the way in which Navarra Media had framed this and the statement that they put out really... Um, upfronted their credentials you know like we are regulated by impress we provide a public service you know even things like basically saying we interview the good guys you know like the activists the the you know, people who talk about climate change not all these other sites that you know deal with crap and there was this sense of of you know you really saw the limitations of the defense for free speech which is that it's the same argument that only if you're in the right set, approved mm. by the right people, you know, whether it be Impress or Ofcom or wherever, that you, um, like, it's almost a kind of, don't you know who I am? Like, how dare you censor me? And it's a real misunderstanding of what alternative media, Spiked, Navarra Media, any of these sites are meant to be about. And, you know, the exciting thing about platforms like Twitter or YouTube was that it was initially meant the reason why it excited us was that it was meant to be a place where you heard different kinds of things where you didn't necessarily have things that were choked by regulation but that could push boundaries break stories whistleblow all this kind of stuff so if you go down the route of saying that it is only a small group of approved people or platforms or sites that get to have the defense and get to be basically get the privilege of free speech um, then it means that you don't really believe in an alternative media or an alternative kind of playground for news or information and you know it has uh, Tom has already said I mean there's lots of different examples of people who have been banned you know okay people on the hard right but also you know like uh, was it David Davis's speech on mm. uh, yeah that was pulled uh, on recently. coronavirus passports yeah which was pulled and everyone knows that anytime on Twitter you even mention the word covered passport or something like that there's, you immediately get a, that little thing on twitter that says warning have you read all the headlines on this so there is a there's a real real um widespread problem with censorship or a kind of an 
overreach of bureaucratic regulation when it comes to people being able to talk. And it's not just, you know, this isn't just billionaires. We are also in the midst of a government um, bill, the online um, safety bill, which is trying to embolden and empower big tech to be able to have this kind of censorious overreach. But also, most importantly, is pushing this idea, this political idea that having free speech online is a harm. Mm. So whether it be um, a free speech for people to post silly crap about beauty standards that harm young people and everyone keeps bringing up Molly Russell, um, the you know the young girl who died, um, committed suicide supposedly after seeing horrendous stuff on Instagram, right up to you know offensive stuff aimed towards MPs um, in the wake of the David Amos murder. There's a real unified sense on actually both the left and the right in the establishment that the online world is a place that needs to be regulated. And it often feels like we're the only ones that are saying, well, hang on a minute, mm. regulation is mean censorship. Don't you understand and, this? And, and doesn't the problem go a lot further than online, in fact? I mean, it is the left that is at the forefront of demanding laws on hate speech. It's the left on campus that is calling for figures to be no platforms. I mean, it, there's just a kind of, there just has been a broader censorious turn yeah. on the left, right? No, completely. I mean, the left has become, let's not beat around the bush, it's synonymous with censorship, Yeah, synonymous with intolerance. Even on a kind of general cultural level, with being kind of stiff, with being kind of uptight, um, with being against free speech and kind of experimentation. I mean, that is really died in the wall now. And it's a real tragedy yeah. as well. I mean, because it's not just a line that people trot out, but historically the left was at the forefront of challenging censorship in all of its different forms, whether that's state censorship, corporate censorship, mob censorship, on all these different fronts, which we've seen come back in new forms in recent years with a real vengeance. The left was at the forefront of challenging that. Even the radical left, you know, um, Rosa Luxemburg, her quotes about the importance of freedom and democracy and all the rest of it, they really echo down the ages. And her alleged heirs today mm. in the form of these people are a complete embarrassment. I mean, the upshot, I think, of a lot of the discussion of the past week is that we don't want big tech making these decisions, but we want some sort of regulator to make these decisions. They want the state to make these decisions. Yeah. That's effectively what they mean, which is an utterly ridiculous kind of proposition. And the entire test of freedom of speech is that whether or not you will defend the rights to speak of people who you fundamentally disagree with. And yet the list of caveats that people have today around misinformation, around hate speech, all the rest of it, things which are ultimately really subjective. And if mm. you if you allow anyone, whether it's um, Silicon Valley oligarchs or someone at a regulator backed by the state to make these kinds of decisions, you're going to create a really censorious dynamic and the principle will already have been conceded. But as I say, there's been no reassessment on this front whatsoever. And I think the reason that up until this point, I mean, there's been a few kind of isolated examples of left-wingers getting caught up in this. I think the SWP got kicked off of their Facebook accounts for yeah. a little while. Was it about a year ago or maybe it was earlier this year? Um, again, quite quickly reinstated as it turns out. It was often glitches in this case. Is that people on the kind of woke left, they like to pose as being like really radical, really anti-establishment, really dangerous. The reason that big tech censorship or any of the, these other forms of censorship, frankly, haven't spooked them up until this point is because they're not threatening whatsoever. Yeah. You know, they have this kind of performative anti-capitalism, which big companies and the news media and everyone are pretty happy to kind of indulge. And other than that, their views on identity, all these kinds of big divisive issues of the day, they're completely in line with the establishment, 100%. You know, the, whether it's the neo-racialism or all this new gender ideology or whatever it is. And again, that's one thing, but it just shows that 
I think the reason that in a sense the kind of Navarra thing or any of these other instances shot people so much is because we know this is unusual that yeah. this would necessarily take place that the woke left specifically would be targeted by this stuff and that's because the reason that they're so up until this point comfortable with that big tech censorship or at least a bit more relaxed about it the reason they're so comfortable with the state may, may be stepping in at one in one way shape or form is because deep down they know that they share the values or a lot of the values of the establishment and anything else that they do is just kind of you know them acting out some sort of revolutionary fantasy that no one believes will actually come to anything <laughs> really i think which is what it's coming down to so yeah i think it's revealing on that front definitely in britain and europe we know there are all kinds of laws limiting free speech laws on hate speech online communications various public order offenses america on the other hand has the first amendment which protects citizens from censorship by the state if only things were that simple though liberty was not secured from day one Americans had to fight for free speech all the same, even with these legal protections. And often they've had to use the courts to establish their rights freely. That's the subject of a brilliant program on Wondrium called Liberty on Trial in America, the cases that define freedom. It really is a must watch for anyone who wants to understand the historical battles for free speech. Wondrium is the streaming service I use if I'm ever wondering about anything. If I ever have questions I need answered or gaps in my knowledge to fill, Wondrium is the place to go. If you sign up for Wondrium, that's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M, you'll get access to loads of incredible content. Wondrium is my favourite streaming service and I know you're going to love it too. With Wondrium, all of their videos are academically comprehensive, relentlessly entertaining, and they're led by engaging experts. And if you don't have time to watch all their content as videos, the Wondrium app has a great feature that lets you listen along to the content, just like a podcast. I know how much you're going to love Wondrium, so I've arranged a special limited time offer for listeners to this podcast to check it out. You can get a month's trial of unlimited access for absolutely free. To get this offer, sign up now through our special URL at wondrium.com slash spiked. That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash spiked. Find out how much you can learn in a month at wondrium.com slash spiked. So we should talk a bit about the government. Uh, we had the autumn budget this week and the three-year spending review. Um, Rishi Sunak was proudly boasting that the Conservatives, now the party of public services, public spending has been brought up to levels not seen since the 1970s, taxes the highest level since the 1950s. I mean, Tom, should we talk about the politics of this, first of all? I mean, what is this saying about, what is the government trying to say about itself by doing this? Well, I think it's quite clearly trying to park its tanks on Labour's lawn. I mean, it's been doing that for a long time, but I think mm. of any of the um, recent, kind of big set piece kind of fiscal events if you like this one really makes that statement very strongly obviously we've already had this was a slightly strange budget insofar as two of the biggest kind of decisions had already been made in relation yeah. to national insurance and then the corporation tax hike way back when um in march and but still it's just it makes that really really clear i mean as many people pointed out you know this was a budget that gordon brown could have delivered and it poses a real question for the Labour Party and the left more broadly, partly because they've been pretending this hasn't happened, you know, yeah. for the best part of this parliament. They again trying to pretend that this is, they're basically, they will revert back to Thatcherite norm any second, mm. or this was all just nonsense or whatever. 
Um, they can't say that now. I mean, the, the, so the, the Tory party definitely have kind of shaken off a lot of its um, sort of Thatcherite orthodoxies, if you like. But the problem for it is, despite the fact that Rishi Sunak could splash the cash more this time because of the fact that, you know, the OBR had revised up its growth figures for the immediate term. But you look beyond that and it all looks pretty anemic. So whilst politically this is really important, as you and Phil have written about on Spike this week, it's getting us nowhere near towards the sort of economic transformation you need to deliver that high wage, high productivity economy. So it's kind of politically interesting. Yeah. But at the same time, I think that's the most that can really be said about it. Because aside from a few welcome things around infrastructure or public services or whatever, the fundamentals haven't changed, even if the political theatre of it has, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't believe the kind of mismatch in the tone of the of the optimism. You know, Rishi Sunak talking about this is a budget for an optimistic future. And yet, then the figures that he had to announce from the OBR were essentially saying that in a few years' time, the economy is only going to be growing by around 1%, between 1% and 2%. I mean, it's quite shocking. And, you know, later on, the Institute for Fiscal Studies produced, um, produced some data suggesting that, you know, household incomes are basically going to be flatlining for the next few years, which is a real terms cut. So this kind of high wage, high productivity economy feels like a bit of a mirage. It's just complete rhetoric. I mean, if the rhetoric were reality, we'd be cheering it, of course, but there doesn't seem to be any serious plan for actually getting there. Yeah. When you, I think you used the word distasteful in your mm. column, Fraser, which uh, we're listening to Sunak on the Today programme this morning. It, it, it was, it was like, have you not been here for the last 18 months? The, I think that he and the government are really using the pandemic and the experience of it kind of perversely, actually, as a cover. So he was boasting this morning about how great it was that the economy had bounced back so much quicker and so much better than we mm. thought. And I've, I mean, yes, that's a good, no one wants uh, people to have been begging in the streets. Of course, that's a good thing. But I mean, come on, what a low bar to set. It, they, everyone seems to have forgotten what existed before the pandemic, that, that we were not in, as we've said many times on this podcast and elsewhere on Spiked, and Phil Mullen's written about this several times in a long read most recently, that the British economy uh, before the pandemic, before we were talking about coronavirus, was in dire straits of a protracted period of stagnation. The word productivity, which no everyone seems to now use in very flippant and shallow terms, yeah. was, you know, no one actually talks about what it really means, what what is needed resource-wise, planning-wise to get businesses up to scratch to be able to increase productivity. There was none of that in Rishi Sunak's um, kind of p- positioning of his budget. There was a few, as you said, tinkering here or there with public services. I mean, we've just had a kind of semi-ridiculous row um, over the last week or so about the increase in the living wage, as if people are meant to come out on the streets and celebrate for an increase in 50p mm. or something. Well, that's going to get eaten up by the inflation. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Time, yeah. And, you know, he it's using that as a cover to basically say, well, things aren't as bad as we thought it was, despite the yeah. fact that things were pretty bad be- before the pandemic. But it was a, it's a small point, but I think it's important that when he was criticised by Rachel Reeves, um, the Labour Shadow Minister, for uh, basically cutting tax on domestic flights. And she said that this was disgraceful because, mm. you know, in the just before COP26, how dare you uh, make it easier or cheaper for people to fly internationally? Where And then Martha Carney on the Today programme came out and said, isn't this an incredibly immoral position to take? And instead of saying, hang on a minute, I'm making things cheaper for people at a time when a lot of people have less money after mm. the last 18 months and haven't seen their parents and family in Manchester or Edinburgh or somewhere and would like to travel. Rishi Sunak came back and said, no, no, don't worry. 
and we might have cut tax there, but we've made it m- more expensive for you to have long haul flights. So really <laughs> we are, you know, don't worry, we do care about the planet. And what it makes you realise is that it's become acceptable to argue that people have less in the context of a green narrative. And I think that is what infects so much of this, dis- and actually what is missing from the commentary around this budget, is that it is now acceptable to argue for less and for people to be worse off. And in that context, Rishi Sunak doesn't have to talk about productivity. He doesn't have to talk about long-term aims of the British economy. He can just ride off the back of this little blip of a, you know, a bounce back in the economy post-pandemic. And I, that really is distasteful. Well, we can talk a bit about rationing and green stuff in a minute, but I do just want to briefly touch on the fact, much commented on, uh, that the Tory front bench were wearing their masks again. <laughs> Important <laughs> story, the, but... <laughs> it's the most ridiculous development of recent weeks, which is that the desperation to import like US-style mask culture wars, <laughs> even though we're <laughs> in a completely different place in terms of COVID than a lot of places in the US are. It's just been so embarrassing. I mean, so the big development is since kind of Sajid Javid has to, had to give that kind of steady as she goes speech a few weeks ago, trying to stave off pressure to introduce plan B and all the rest of it, suggesting that he would start to wear his mask around and all the rest of it. I believe it's now become mandatory for people to wear masks in parliament at the moment, but excluding MPs still, yeah. <laughs> which is a, a great little double standard. Um, but no, you had the Tory front bench at least showing up with a few notable exceptions. I think Jacob Rees Morgan, a handful of others, um, didn't actually go for it. Uh, but then a lot of backbenchers just not wearing them whatsoever. And then of course the images on the flip side of all Labour, you know, sufficiently kind of masked up as some sort of great statement as if we <laughs> didn't watch the Labour Party conference yeah. a couple of weeks ago where they were all sat cheek by jowl without a mask in sight. I mean, it's just utterly ridiculous. And I think the attachment now to masks is, is fascinating. First of all, this idea that masks are the only thing that stand between us and COVID cases, you know, shooting through the roof is absolutely ridiculous. Even a proper supporter of the masks policy will concede it's a relatively minor measure you yeah. know, in the grand scheme of things. And yet you had uh, Billy Bragg this week saying that he, does, <laughs> he always wears his mask around. I think he was talking about ordering his breakfast. They asked him why he was wearing the mask. Like, so they don't think I'm one of those Tories. It's so <laughs> stupid. It's so stupid. But again, it feels like the the more we edge out of this pandemic, the more desperation there is on the kind of lockdown fanatic set to claw back some of that kind of moral yeah. pomp that they had over the course of the past few years by trying to claim that this government is just trying to kill people. They don't want to let that go. Hashtag like. Tory genocide. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's it's funny that even the most, you know, the one of the strongest arguments, not that I agree with it, but one of the arguments that has to be made for masks is a kind of behavioural science argument that it reminds people that there's a pandemic, that it reminds people to be careful rather than the actual um, effect of putting a piece of cloth on yeah, your face. Which in the context of a government that is blue in the face, you know, stating that it follows the science is is a mismatch. You know, we, you know that elder people on the front bench have pulled that mask out of their jacket that they've worn five times in the last few days. You know, everyone was laughing about the fact that Boris Johnson couldn't keep his over his nose. <laughs> now, there's, there's like we know that masks only really work in a kind of in a very beneficial way if you do it hospital style with fresh ones. And you know, I remember when I was uh, uh, vaccinating people, you get trained in how to remove them and how to put them back on. Of course, no one's doing that. But in a, you know, a government, up a snood in front. Of- <laughs> yeah. a government, you know, this in particular, I think someone like Boris Johnson, who started off 
at, you know, has had an about turn in a very short space of time, began the pandemic. Okay, he's been criticised for it, saying, I'm going to carry on shaking people's hands. And at least, even if it was silly in some points, maintaining that sense of normal life is a good thing to fight for. Mm. You know, and mask, wearing masks and covering our faces is not normal life, is now doing, as, as Tom says, this kind of very gesture politics stance that is just about looking like, you know, and sitting next to Jacob Reese Moss, who's unmasking the other side of him. It's just like, for God's sake, the 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 country is not so stupid. I think this is a key point as to think. All right, pandemic's over. If you all turn up without masks, give people a little bit more credit to suggest that this whole obsession with behavioural science and and messaging and comms and imaging and kind of symbolism around mask wearing is you know we're not Pavlov's dogs. We're not just going to repeat what people have a sense of of wearing masks where it's appropriate and binning them and returning to normality in most circumstances. We were talking earlier about YouTube, but that's not the only big tech firm that has an extraordinary amount of power in the world today. The same company that controls half of online retail can also passively eavesdrop on your private conversations at home. And the company that controls 90% of all internet searches probably runs your email service too, and it gets to track everything you do on your smartphone. Big tech is more powerful than most countries are, and they profit by exploiting your personal data. But you don't have to put up with this. That's why I use ExpressVPN to put a layer of protection between my online activity and the tech juggernauts. Think about how much of your life is on the internet. Sadly, every site you visit, every video you watch or message you send gets tracked and data mined. But when you run ExpressVPN on your device, the software hides your IP address something big tech can use to personally identify you. So ExpressVPN makes your activity harder to trace and to sell to advertisers. ExpressVPN also encrypts 100% of your personal data to keep you safe from hackers and eavesdroppers on your network. And ExpressVPN does all of this without slowing down your internet connection. That's why it's rated the number one VPN service by the tech whizzes at CNET and TechRadar. What I like most about ExpressVPN is just how easy it is to use. You download the app on your phone or your computer, you tap one button and you're protected. So stop handing over all your personal data to the big tech monopolies. Don't let them mine your activity and sell your information. Protect yourself with the VPN I trust to keep me safe online. Just visit expressvpn.com slash spiked. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash spiked to get three extra months free. Go to expressvpn.com slash spiked right now to learn more. It's obviously run up to COP26. There's been a lot of um, sort of sideshows around it. I think it's fair to say we've had the insulate. Britain protesters out and about again, still not in prison to their own surprise. Gluing their faces to the road. <laughs> Gluing yeah. their faces to the road. <laughs> we, we've, we've got the ULES coming in just in time for COP26, introduced by Sadiq Khan, the ultra low emission zone. Um, but one of the most striking stories has been uh, Joanna Lumley and her plea, which she's made on ITV and on BBC, and she's been doing the media rounds calling for a return to sort of wartime rationing mm. to deal with the climate crisis. I mean, what do you make of this? I mean, it's ridiculous, but it's one of those things where it's just a kind of slightly more extreme version of what the sort of mainstream yeah. opinion yeah. is within this particular movement. So on its own terms, it's, you know, utterly 
nuts. I mean, it's, it's as if the, we introduce rationing as a, just a kind of prudent policy response yeah. rather than a unique situation in the middle of a war, like, <laughs> you know, where they didn't want the nation to be starved into submission. So they had to be very, very careful and ration food. It's the, the obviously there's this desperation to treat climate. It's, you know, it went from being a problem to a crisis to now it's a war, basically. Mm. That's how people like to frame it. Cause therefore, um, emergency situations require emergency measures, I guess. Um, now, this particular proposal is probably going to get short shrift, but the kind of unspoken thing of a lot of climate discussion is that it's all about rationing, really. Yeah. It's about rationing how much you can do. It's about rationing where you can go in the world. It's about rationing how um, your ability to get around the place easily. I mean, I thought the, it was interesting a couple of weeks ago, the Climate Change Committee in recent weeks has been cri- laying a lot of criticism on the government. This is the... Um, committee that advises the government it is independent for basically stressing too much of the kind of tech fixes as they mm. see it to climate change so the idea that you'll have shiny new green infrastructure projects um which will um get us over the line of net zero and they make the point and most greens make this point i think it's fair to say that m- the bulk of this has to come from what they call behavioral change yeah which effectively means you're doing less or more depending how you look on it you know, like yeah. you're gonna have to make your life much more difficult <laughs> and much less convenient um in order to save the planet so it's, yeah, it's one of those situations where Joanna Lumley has probably overreached a little mm. bit, but there's a lot to what she's saying, which speaks to the kind of desire to enforce scarcity, which exists within the green movement, definitely. Absolutely. I mean, we were talking about those discussions around flights and even in London, we've had the ultra low emission zone extended. I mean, that's a kind of telling you to use your car less, essentially, isn't it? Well, it's not just telling you, it's, it is stopping you from use your car, using your car because any vehicle that doesn't meet the really quite stringent um, restrictions now, you you simply can't drive it unless you're able to pay £12.50 a day. And that's not just within central London. It's now extended to the north and south circular. And uh, you know, as many people are saying, if you're um, you know watching this podcast from somewhere outside of London and laughing, be careful because there are plans to <laughs> bring in new leases in most major um, cities and towns. It's seen as a very positive green thing because it says, you know, look what happens. We bring in the ULEZ and, you know, emissions go down because people stop driving. It's like the same thing with smoking. It's like, yeah, because you've banned people from doing it and you've made it too expensive. But it's, you know, this is a perfect, the ULEZ is a perfect example of how the concept of behavioural change is so coercive because, you know, take for example, you know, it, Traveling in London is unpleasant. Driving in London is unpleasant because, you know, not just emissions, like, there's so much traffic. There's too many people driving in London. Everyone knows that. I would very happily take a bus and read my book and enjoy the time to myself if they didn't come infrequently and if they weren't themselves always choked up in traffic. The government is not giving people more choice by putting on more public transport, by uh, investing in new infrastructure in, in towns and particularly outside of London, in northern towns and cities where it's impossible to get from one place to another without driving in many cases. There's not a proliferation of choice and saying, look at all these things, you could have a better life, yeah. a nicer time and as a as a plus, it would be greener. What they're saying is we have to have less choice. And in all these things, whether it be in discussions about how much meat you eat, how much, you know, what milk you drink, how you get your kids to school, whether or not you recycle, it's all about limiting people's choices rather than a proliferation of wealth and personal choice. And therefore, the green agenda is always going to be coercive and actually is always going to be unpopular because you don't have, I mean, there have been suggestions now that we should have a referendum on net zero or something like that, which might be a little out there, but it does bring home the fact that so much, as we've said so many times in this podcast, so much of our life, our daily life is changing for the worse. Mm. And we have never been able to have a discussion or a say on it. And something's got to give that. Mm. Absolutely. 
Tom? I, I think that point is really important to stress because the sort of democratic deficit, if you want to call it that, on all of these issues is so profound. I mean, Ipsos Mori had some polling out recently. It's something like 25% of the population think climate change is the most pressing issue. And unsurprisingly, that goes down as you go down social class. So yeah. It's like AB is like 35% or something and it goes all the way down to 20 for DE, unskilled workers in the, in the jargon. And that's so obvious. I mean, it's just the fact that people have immediate concerns about how they're going to be able to make a living, how they're going to be able to get the kids to school, all the rest of it. And all of these policies, by effect, if not by design, hammer poor and working class people disproportionately yeah, all the time. And you just think that there's not even an attempt to square that circle, it feels like. You just say, oh, why don't you buy a new van? Mm. It's utterly ridiculous. But I think what we'll start to see is these things are really starting to bite now. Up until this point, partly because a lot of these things have been slightly less ambitious, shall we say, these policies, partly because we're also now in the middle of this cost of living crisis and all the rest of it. People are starting to realise that this agenda is about pushing them around, it's about making their lives worse, and it's about doing all of that without asking them whether they want that to happen. And that's going to force some kind of response, definitely. What form it takes, I don't know. I don't think people are going to be out in the streets gilet jean style <laughs> yet, <laughs> but something's going to happen, I think. People can't be pushed around like this forever. Well, the people out on the street, unfortunately, are the ones pushing for greater action. I mean, we should talk about that very briefly. I mean, Insulate Britain are still out. Mm. They their own spokespeople are shocked. They thought they they thought it would last about two days and they'd all get banged up. But the police treat them with kid gloves. They're not being processed in the court. Something has gone wrong there. Something has gone very wrong. And indeed the fact that, I mean, I'm all for, you know, this is news and there being interviews and, you know, don't want that to be banned or anything. But you have, particularly on channels like Good Morning Britain, I saw this, uh, actually it was quite frightening interview with one of these Insulate Britain protesters in which all she had to say for herself is, we have three to four years mm. to save our children. <laughs> and at what point What's she do done with you, those children? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, at what point do you start saying this is beyond reasonable discussion? Like this is just madness. Yeah. And these people are just kind of crazies, mm. um, like doomsday end of the worlders. And, you know, it's very clear that in terms of like public sentiment, things are escalating. You know, like some asshole threw ink in their face today, uh, a few days ago, which lots of us who are annoyed at Insulate Britain might sort of like want to chuckle at. But it's not, there, There's this is not right. This is not how protest is meant to happen. This is, you know, them getting in front of the Dartford Crossing and stopping ordinary workers, as we mentioned a few weeks ago on the podcast, is not about democratic engagement. And, you know, the, our principle of defending freedom of protest stands unchanged by all of this. But you do have to start asking why authorities are not dealing with this in some way as a public nuisance. It has crossed over that line, I think. And, you know, you just know that if it was a Brexit protester, if it was an anti-LTN protest, as many have happened in Highbury and in Hackney, that the police are on it like a shot and break it up like a shot. Um, but it seems to be with insulate, you know, vicars who are protesting for insulate Britain, <laughs> that they just kind of get a pat on the back and maybe a juice box if they're getting dehydrated. And that tells you something about political priorities. Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.